Chapter Three of Armageddon Twenty Four Nineteen A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Life in the Twenty-Fifth Century. We were delayed in starting for quite a while since I had to acquire a few crude ideas about the technique of using these belts. I had been sitting down, for instance, with the belt strapped about me, enjoying an ease similar to that of a comfortable armchair. When I stood up with a natural exertion of muscular effort, I shot ten feet into the air with a wild instinctive thrashing of arms and legs that amused Wilma greatly. But after some practice, I began to get the trick of gauging muscular effort to a minimum of vertical and a maximum of horizontal. The correct form, I found, was in a measure comparable to that of skating. I found also that in forest work particularly, the arms and hands could be used to great advantage in swinging along from branch to branch, so prolonging leaps almost indefinitely at times. In going up the side of the mountain, I found that my twentieth-century muscles did have an advantage, in spite of lack of skill with the belt, and since the slopes were very sharp, and most of our leaps were upward, I could have distanced Wilma easily. But when we crossed the ridge and descended, she outstripped me with her superior technique. Choosing the steepest slopes, she would crouch in the top of a tree and propel herself outward, literally diving until, with the loss of horizontal momentum, she would assume a more upright position and float downward. In this manner, she would sometimes cover as much as a quarter of a mile in a single leap, while I leaped and scrambled clumsily behind, thoroughly enjoying the novel sensation. Halfway down the mountain, we saw another green-clad figure leap out above the treetops towards us. The three of us perched on an outcropping of rock from which a view for many miles around could be had, while Wilma hastily explained her adventure and my presence to her fellow guard, whose name was Alan. I learned later that this was the modern form of Helen. You want to report by phone then, don't you? Alan took a compact packet about six inches square from a holster attached to her belt and handed it to Wilma. So far as I could see, it had no special receiver for the year. Wilma merely threw back a lid as though she were opening a book and began to talk. The voice that came back from the machine was as audible as her own. She was queried closely as to the attack upon her, and at considerable length as to myself, and I could tell from the tone of that voice that its owner was not prepared to take me at my face value as readily as Wilma had. For that matter, neither was the other girl. I could realize it from the suspicious glances she threw my way when she thought my attention was elsewhere, and the manner in which her hand hovered constantly near her gun holster. Wilma was ordered to bring me in at once, and informed that another scout would take her place on the other side of the mountain. So she closed down the lid of the phone and handed it back to Alan, who seemed relieved to see us departing over the treetops in the direction of the camps. We had covered perhaps ten miles, in what still seemed to me a surprisingly easy fashion, when Wilma explained that from here on we would have to keep to the ground. We were nearing the camps, she said, and there was always the possibility that some small hand scout ship invisible high in the sky, might catch sight of us through a projectoscope and thus find the general location of the camps. Wilma took me to the scout office, which proved to be a small building of irregular shape, conforming to the trees around it, and substantially constructed of green sheet-like material. 
I was received by the assistant scout boss, who reported my arrival at once to the historical office and to officials he called the psycho boss and the history boss, who came in a few minutes later. The attitude of all three men was at first polite but skeptical, and Wilma's ardent advocacy seemed to amuse them secretly. For the next two hours I talked, explained, and answered questions. I had to explain in detail the manner of my life in the twentieth century, and my understanding of customs, habits, business, science, and the history of that period, and about developments in the centuries that had elapsed. Had I been in a classroom, I would have come through the examination with a very poor mark, for I was unable to give my answer to fully half their questions. But before long I realized that the majority of these questions were designed as traps. Objects, of whose purpose I knew nothing, were casually handed to me, and I was watched keenly as I handled them. In the end, I could see both amazement and belief begin to show in the faces of my inquisitors, and at last the historical and psycho-bosses agreed openly that they could find no flaw in my story or reactions, and that, unbelievable as it seemed, my story must be accepted as genuine. They took me at once to Big Boss Hart. He was a portly man with a poker face. He would probably have been the successful politician even in the twentieth century. They gave him a brief outline of my story and a report of their examination of me. He made no comment other than to nod his acceptance of it. Then he turned to me. How does it feel? he asked. Do we look funny to you? A bit strange, I admitted, but I'm beginning to lose that dazed feeling, though I can see I have an awful lot to learn. Maybe we can learn some things from you, too, he said. So you fought in the First World War. Do you know we have very little left in the way of records of the details of that war, that is, the precise conditions under which it was fought, and the tactics employed. We forgot many things during the Han Terror, and, well, I think you might have a lot of ideas worth thinking over for our raid masters. By the way, now that you're here and can't go back to your own century, so to speak, what do you want to do? You're welcome to become one of us, or perhaps you'd just like to visit with us for a while and then look around among the other gangs. Maybe you'd like some of the others better. Don't make up your mind now. We'll put you down as an exchange for a while. Let's see. You and Bill Hearn ought to get along well together. He's camp boss of number 34 when he isn't acting as raid boss or scout boss. There's a vacancy in his camp. Stay with him and think things over as long as you want to. As soon as you make up your mind to anything, let me know. We all shook hands, for that was one custom that had not died out in 500 years and I set out with Bill Hearn. Bill, like all the others, was clad in green. He was a big man. That is, he was about my own height, five feet eleven. This was considerably above the average now, for the race had lost something in stature, it seemed, through the vicissitudes of five centuries. Most of the women were a bit below five feet, and the men only a trifle above this height. For a period of two weeks, Bill was to confine himself to camp duties, so I had a good chance to familiarize myself with the community life. It was not easy. There were so many marvels to absorb. I never ceased to wonder at the strange combination of rustic social life and feverish industrial activity. At least, it was strange to me. From my experience, industrial development meant crowded cities, tenements, paved streets, profusions of vehicles, noise, hurrying men and women with strained or dull faces, 
vast structures, and ornate public works. Here, however, was rustic simplicity, apparently isolated families and groups living in the heart of the forest, with a quarter of a mile or more between households, a total absence of crowds, no means of conveyance other than the belts called jumpers, almost constantly worn by everybody, and an occasional rocket ship used only for longer journeys, and underground plants or factories that were to my mind more like laboratories and engine rooms. Many of them were excavations as deep as mines, with well-finished, lighted, and comfortable interiors. These people were adepts at camouflage against air observation. Not only would their activity have been unsuspected by an airship passing over the center of the community, but even by an enemy who might happen to drop through the screen of the upper branches to the floor of the forest. The camps, or household structures, were all irregular in shape and of colors that blended with the great trees among which they were hidden. There were 724 dwellings, or camps, among the Wyomings, located within an area of about 15 square miles. The total population was 8,688, every man, woman, and child, whether member or exchange, being listed. The plants were widely scattered through the territory also. Nowhere was anything like congestion permitted. So far as possible, families and individuals were assigned to living quarters, not too far from the plants or offices in which their work lay. All able-bodied men and women alternated in two-week periods between military and industrial service, except those who were needed for household work. Since working conditions in the plants and offices were ideal, and everybody thus had plenty of healthy outdoor activity in addition, the population was sturdy and active. Laziness was regarded as nearly the greatest of social offenses. Hard work and general merit were variously rewarded with extra privileges, advancement to positions of authority, and with various items of personal equipment for convenience and luxury. In leisure moments, I got a great enjoyment from sitting outside the dwelling in which I was quartered with Bill Hearn and ten other men, watching the occasional passers-by as with leisurely but swift movements they swung up and down the forest trail, rising from the ground in long, almost horizontal leaps, occasionally swinging from one convenient branch overhead to another before sliding back to the ground farther on. Normal traveling pace, where these trails were straight enough, was about twenty miles an hour. Such things as automobiles and railroad trains, the memory of them not more than a month old in my mind, seemed inexpressibly silly and futile compared with such convenience as these belts or jumpers offered. Bill suggested that I wander around for several days, from plant to plant, to observe and study what I could. The entire community had been apprised of my coming, my rating as an exchange reached every building and post in the community by means of ultronic broadcast. Everywhere I was welcomed in an interested and helpful spirit. I visited the plants where ultronic vibrations were isolated from the ether and through slow processes built up into subelectronic, electronic, and atomic forms into the two great synthetic elements, ultron and inertron. I learned something, superficially at least, of the processes of combining chemical and mechanical action through which were produced the various forms of synthetic cloth. I watched the manufacture of the machines which were used at locations of construction to produce the various forms of building materials, but I was particularly interested in the munitions plants and the rocket ship shops. 
Ultron is a solid of great molecular density and moderate elasticity, which has the property of being 100% conductive to those pulsations known as light, electricity, and heat. Since it is completely permeable to light vibrations, it is therefore absolutely invisible and non-reflective. Its magnetic response is almost, but not quite, 100% also. It is therefore very heavy under normal conditions, but extremely responsive to the repeller or anti-gravity rays such as the Hans use as legs for their airships. Inertron is the second great triumph of American research and experimentation with ultronic forces. It was developed just a few years before my awakening in the abandoned mind. It is a synthetic element built up through a complicated heterodyning of ultronic pulsations from infrabalanced subionic forms. It is completely inert to both electric and magnetic forces in all the orders above the ultronic, that is to say, the subelectronic, the electronic, the atomic, and the molecular. In consequence, it has a number of amazing and valuable properties. One of these is the total lack of weight. Another is a total lack of heat. It has no molecular vibration whatever. It reflects 100% of the heat and light impinging upon it. It does not feel cold to the touch, of course, since it will not absorb the heat of the hand. It is a solid, very dense in molecular structure despite its lack of weight, of great strength and considerable elasticity. It is a perfect shield against the disintegrator rays. Rocket guns are very simple contrivances so far as the mechanism of launching the bullet is concerned. They are simple light tubes closed at the rear end with a trigger-actuated pin for piercing the thin skin at the base of the cartridge. This piercing of the skin starts the chemical and atomic reaction. The entire cartridge leaves the tube under its own power at a very easy initial velocity, just enough to ensure accuracy of aim so the tube does not have to be of heavy construction. The bullet increases in velocity as it goes. It may be solid or explosive. It may explode on contact or on time or a combination of these two. Bill and I talked mostly of weapons, military tactics, and strategy. Strangely enough, he had no idea whatever of the possibilities of the barrage, though the tremendous effect of a curtain of fire with such high-explosive projectiles as these modern rocket guns used was obvious to me. But the barrage idea, it seemed, had been lost track of completely in the air wars that followed the First World War, and in the peculiar guerrilla tactics developed by Americans in the later period of operations from the ground against Han airships and in the gang wars which, until a few generations ago, I learned, had been almost continuous. I wonder, said Bill one day, if we couldn't work up some sort of barrage to spring on the bad bloods. The big boss told me today that he's been in communication with the other gangs, and all are agreed that the bad bloods might as well be wiped out for good. That attempt on Wilma Deering's life and their evident desire to make trouble amongst the gangs has stirred up every community east of the Alleghenies. The boss says that none of the others will object if we go after them. So I imagine that before long we will. Now show me again how you worked that business in the Argonne Forest. The conditions ought to be pretty much the same. I went over it with him in detail, and gradually we worked out a modified plan that we better adapted to our more powerful weapons and the use of jumpers. It will be easy, Bill exulted. I'll slide down and talk it over with the boss tomorrow.
During the first two weeks of my stay with the Wyomings, Wilma Deering and I saw a great deal of each other. I naturally felt a little closer friendship for her, in view of the fact that she was the first human being I saw after waking from my long sleep. Her appreciation of my saving her life, though I could not have done otherwise than I did in that matter, and most of all, my own appreciation of the fact that she had not found it as difficult as the others to believe my story operated in the same direction. I could easily imagine my story must have sounded incredible. It was natural enough, too, that she should feel an unusual interest in me. In the first place, I was her personal discovery. In the second, she was a girl of studious and reflective turn of mind. She never got tired of my stories and descriptions of the twentieth century. The others of the community, however, seemed to find our friendship a bit amusing. It seemed that Wilma had a reputation for being cold toward the opposite sex, and so others, not being able to appreciate some of her fine qualities as I did, misinterpreted her attitude, much to their own delight. Wilma and I, however, ignored this as much as we could. End of chapter 3